it's a combination of the, you know, culturally, there's this desire to be uh, the most novel, the first um, to explore areas that have never, you know, been explored. And there's, uh, and there's, and within the, within academia, there is a really good sort of infrastructure and financing in order to do that. And then beyond that, there's the technology transfer piece that is, uh, you know, seems to be more efficient here and, and results in the university or academic institution benefiting from that exploration. And then there's the initial seed capital um, by highly prospective, you know, people that are somewhat risk averse and, and are willing to take on the, the risk of failing seven times or whatever it has to be to, you know, to, to get to achieve one success. And then, and then there's the, the sustained capital behind that um, that is is okay with pouring, you know, sometimes billion dollars uh, into a drug before you get to market. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Welcome to episode 23 of Reboot Health. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Mitchell L. Jones. Mitch is an entrepreneur, executive, and research clinician with experience in building highly functional teams and directing therapeutics development and strategic activities. His focus has been in the areas of inflammatory, immune, metabolic, and fibrotic disease. He's innovated new technologies, included, including targeted immune modulating therapeutics and live cell biotherapeutics for metabolic disease, which has been commercialized and is now sold globally. Mitch has an MD and PhD from McGill University. He's been a founder and worked for five private and publicly traded biotech companies in Canada and the US. Currently, he is VP of Corporate Development and Strategy at Chemomab Therapeutics, developing drugs for serious fibroinflammatory disease. I want to get Mitch on the show for several reasons. First, to highlight an example of some of the amazing things Canadians are doing in life sciences south of the border. Second, to dig into his history of building life sciences ventures, and finally, to surface some learnings from his deep domain knowledge of what's necessary for success. Mitch, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's jump right into it. You've got a wealth of knowledge. We've got about an hour to do this, so I want to kind of extract all the juice I can from you. Mitch, you're, you're now working in corporate development at Chemomab Therapeutics, but as they say, it's not your first rodeo. You started your education here in Canada and ended up with an MD, PhD degrees, Let's start out with a brief arc of how you moved from sort of what I'm going to call sort of a deep academic or educational background to your first stint building a life sciences venture, and then we can take it from there. That sounds good. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think this all started uh, my final years at, at McGill in my undergraduate degree. Um, I had the privilege of learning about a body of research in artificial cell therapy. It was part of... Uh, an experimental medicine course 
Um, the work was presented by Dr. Satya Prakash, who was a student of, of TMS Chang. Um, and they were you know, teaching a course on, on artificial cells, which is a fairly broad topic, but this specific um, course was on, and, and research that they presented was on genetically engineered strains of bacteria that could be used to reduce unwanted metabolites in blood, uh, and specifically in uremia and kidney failure. And so the idea was interesting to me. I thought um, of a myriad of applications that could affect, um, uh, or you could affect metabolic disease um, with genetically engineered strains, one of them being hyperlipidemia and inflammation. Um, I thought that that was uh, important because of um, some family and personal reasons. Uh, I had sort of a family history with metabolic disease. And so with that in mind, I approached Dr. Prakash, wanted to work in his lab. Um, I was the first student. I helped build and organize his lab, uh, you know, put together machines, calibrate machines, get the lab functioning, get the systems in place, the processes. Um, I wanted to do my master's degree before uh, an MD. And so I was um, applied to and got into a master's degree in this lab in biomedical engineering. My thesis and focus was on developing biotherapeutics, um, genetically engineered cells, or uh, in this case, bacteria, for the treatment of metabolic disease. And um, I developed several strains and uh, tested several strains uh, for the treatment of hyperlipidemia. Um, I filed intellectual property around those as, as sort of part of the, the two-year master's. Um, and with several founders, we started a company and the company was called Micropharma. And the idea was to develop uh, genetically engineered strains for, for treating metabolic disease. I was fortunate enough to have a brother who was sort of uh, a sophisticated business person who graduated at McGill as well as my twin, Ryan Jones. I was fortunate to be surrounded by Dr. Prakash, who was um, you know, very business-minded and helped organize uh, the business and, and with Ryan. Ryan helped raise the, a seed round. Um, after that, continued on, you know, to medicine and completed my, my MD while working on the idea. Um, we raised a $3 million New York Angels round. We raised $10 million from Group to Known. Uh, and then when it came time to uh, match in medicine after four years, I sort of made the what was at the time a very difficult decision to uh, enter industry and pursue that over uh, practice. So um, I continued to work on the idea and uh, develop the company. And also um, started work on a, on a PhD um, and then developed the, the research, the uh, discovery research, translation and clinical development teams required to take the uh, idea through to uh, uh, clinical um, evidence and, and commercialization. Got it. So, so there's a couple of things I want to unpack there with you, Mitch, which are sort of really interesting to me. One is, you know, time frame. I don't think you mentioned it, but I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is kind of the early to mid 2000s when this is all happening more or less, which is, um, you know, a good, a good, to almost two decades ago, right? Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of this was sort of in what we now call sort of the microbiomics kind of 
domain, right? Which now is probably commonplace in terms of vernacular. Everyone's throwing it around left, right, and center. I'm not sure they were doing that. And certainly when I went through school, they, we weren't doing it in, in 2000s. Like it never came up on, on any of my tests anyway. So you're working on this and metabolic disease, inflammation, specifically hyperlipidemia, it's early days. Where did this sort of, and, and I know you sort of told me a little bit about sort of the idea of sort of, you know, hyperlipidemia, you're looking at sort of, you know, changing bacterial cells to kind of help in that domain. But where did the idea of sort of this sort of, maybe it wasn't, maybe you didn't call it that, Mitch, this idea of sort of microbiome come from? Like, was that something you guys were talking about then? It was just in a little lab or or was it just not even called that? And we just called it like changing bacteria. And then the second thing is, which again, I, I love to sort of just talk about or I'm trying to understand what the cultural changes. This is a decade and a half to two decades ago. Why create like IP venture? Like that was new. Like this is now everyone wants to do it. But back then, I suspect you were going against the grain. Give us a little bit of color on those maybe two things. Where did the idea come from and why a venture? Like you're building something that, you know, probably most people just said, just you, Mitch, you got a master's, you got a PhD, MD, just become, just be, just join the faculty and, and open up your own lab and then that's it but you didn't do that. So maybe I had a color color. Sure. Yeah. Um, again, early 2000s. So, um, you know, the, uh, I'm not exactly sure the date where, you know, microbiome, the, the term microbiome was, was started to be used broadly, but, you know, we were coming from a lab that was more an artificial cells research lab. So we were encapsulating biologic materials. It could be an enzyme. It could be a whole cell. It could be a a, um, a genetically engineered cell. It could be a mammalian cell, and type of type. In, in the case of type one diabetes, that would be you know transplanted. It could, it could be in the case of uh, of our research, uh, a bacteria that was delivered orally. So, we were taking a, a bit of a different approach. We were to the microbiome. You know, our technology was we would select natural strains of bacteria that were isolated from the human gut, had a phenotype that we had selected that were much like genetically engineered strains, and we could compare the two. And we were looking to break down dietary constituents. Um, that would build up, such as in phenylketonuria, there are certain constituents that you'd want to uh, reduce or, uh, you know, remove certain things from the enteropathic circulation or, or modulate things in the enteropathic recirculation in the case of bile. So we would employ manufacturing techniques once we had selected these strains to build up the enzymatic activity, sort of give it a super phenotype. Uh, and then stabilize that with certain technologies and techniques. Uh, at that time in the microbiome space, there were people growing bacteria, delivering bacteria. They were focused on how healthy is the strain? You know, is it growing in an S-shaped curve? And how many bugs are there? How many colony forming units are there? You know, we were very much focused on, are we delivering the, um, the right phenotype, the right enzyme, the right activity to the right site of disease? Uh, or the right site within the gut in order to affect disease. Um, and so it was much more an approach like today's companies like Novome uh, Biotechnology or Synlogic, um, as opposed to a Finch or a series uh, that are sort of more uh, complete consortia delivery com uh, you know, companies focused on that kind of technology. So that's the, uh, you know, the first part of your question. I think the second part of your question um, is about the environment itself. Um, and I think, you know, um, Montreal at that time, you know, was, had gone through a sort of renaissance in a, in a hot period of time uh, with life sciences companies such as Merck and Co. or Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, you know, the tax environment was set up so that 
um, you know, had the lowest, you know, corporate tax rate in North America. And so I think we were sort of aware that um, it was beneficial to do life science uh, and, and drug development work um, in, in that environment. And certainly with, you know, on the French side, um, the Shum and, and the MUHC on the Canadian, on the uh, English side, um, you know, there was a lot of human resources and human capital uh, for these companies. And there were some successful drugs developed by um, Merck and VMS uh, in, in Montreal. Um, so we kind of had that as the, as the backdrop. And then um, within um, the university, I think there were some labs that wanted to focus much on the academic side. Of, and there were other labs that were more focused on, you know, how could we uh, um, build a, a therapeutic from this. Got it. So you, you touched on two points. Um, I, I do want to just sort of for for the audience. I mean, I think the, just add a little color, Mitch, to what you did because I think again, if you put what you did with that venture in the context of the time you did it, I think it's it really sort of highlights um, the amazing stuff you did. I mean, you raised a hundred thousand from friends and family, three million dollar. You mentioned New York Angel investment. $10 million then from Group Danone. This is all with the same venture. $6 million of non-dilutive financing. You did a license deal with Bayer and Abbott, and then you commercialized the product across North America with the winning combination, and then engaged in UAS as part of an acquirer for part of the company. That was in the early 2000s. I mean, I think that would still today, by all respects, be considered a huge win for most ventures um, in these days. So you touched on it a little bit, Mitch. Was Montreal seemed like a different place back then, maybe? Do, so... Is it, I guess, is my question to you, is it a different place? Does it still have those same ingredients or do you think we've fallen a little bit behind? Maybe we're the same and cultures changed. And again, I know you're sort of south of the border. I don't know how many connect, how much connection you still have with Montreal, but maybe sort of talk us to that. Like how much of it was kind of Mitch isolated lab doing amazing science. And I realized that's necessary, but it's not sufficient to build a venture. How much of that other stuff was percolating in Montreal that allowed you to do um, what you did and and is that still there today? Is everyone caught up? Are we falling behind? Like, how do you look at that? Like, what lens should we be using? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think to build a successful biotech company that, you know, whether it's, whether you are focused on clinical development or whether you started sort of discovery and, um, and, and translate and, and develop clinical evidence and, and your intention is, is to commercialize. I think, you know, the teams that are required to do these kinds of things are very cross-functional and the kind of environment uh, and management leadership style that's used within these kinds of teams and this kind of company is very sort of matrix oriented. So there's a lot okay. of, you know, leadership without authority and there's a lot of uh, very sort of almost uh, flat leadership style. So the, um, you know, from, from a cross-functional cross perspective, you need um, folks that understand CMC uh, and manufacturing. You need uh, folks that spend all of their time, uh, can, you know, worried about and, and setting up quality control uh, mechanisms and, and structure and processes. You need uh, folks that are doing, you know, research, folks that are doing uh, translation. There's even translation is separated into sort of the research portions of translation and the medical portions of translation. So, so um, parts of the team are focused only on, you know, how do we uh, take this from animals and, and bring it into humans? And part of the team, you know, when you're in the clinical 
stages of development are focused on, you know, which biomarkers can be used to uh, evaluate efficacy and, and, and look at safety and, and, and how can we um, validate um, the assays for those and, and develop uh, the uh, infrastructure as well as the, um, uh, uh, the uh, logistics to manage clinical samples and, and do the evaluation. So these teams are not just, you know, one person with a good idea, um, raising money uh, and, 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 uh, and implementing ideas. Uh, you know, it takes uh, a large number uh, of very specialized folks. And so at Mon in Montreal at the time, within the microbiome space, a lot of that didn't exist. So we had to, uh, you know, a lot of the, the folks that would um, uh, manufacture bacteria existed, but, but th those folks had experience in the probiotic world. And so we were introducing the idea of developing, you know, drugs. So we were sort of, you know, it was that we would manufacture these sort of more GMP. Um, and we were looking at the phenotype of the, of the bacteria and not just the number of bacteria. So that was kind of, you know, a whole new area. And so we had, we had to build a lot of that. Um, fortunately, um, the quality of the human resources uh, coming out of um, some of the universities in Canada and some of the folks that have gone back to Canada um, after working in the U.S. Um, make that a little bit easier in, in, in that Montreal um, in the Quebec environment. Is, is your sense, Mitch, that it's, it's, it's harder to do that now? I mean, given the two decades, is everyone, you know, in Boston and in the Bay area, or it's still pretty, like you have a sense of, you know, has everyone left the city for, for a variety of reasons, including the large pharma where you may have tapped some of that talent, right? Um, Quebec, obviously a bit better than Ontario for sure. But I'm just sort of curious, like, is, can you still can you still find those individuals and build a strong team at an early stage? Is that is that something for the sense of, or it's actually the friction is more today than it was twenty years ago, or or vice versa? Yeah, I mean, if, if I think about my team, um, we had some incredible uh, research scientists, and you know, two of them I can think are you know still um, in Quebec working at uh, companies where they're working in the you know, diagnostic space or they're working in the therapeutic space, but maybe in the environment in, in the U.S., they'd be working on things that were sort of more novel um, or pushing, you know, because the, they're uh, incredibly skilled research scientists. Um, and then when I think about a couple of folks that worked at, at Micropharma that ended up, you know, moving down to the States, uh, I can think of one that's, you know, doing manufacturing, CMC and manufacturing of cell, um, cell therapy, sort of CAR-T type therapies um, in oncology. Another one that's working at a large biotech farm on the West Coast, doing sort of the, you know, multi-omics platform um, bioinformatics kind of stuff. And so I think that when the opportunities there, um, the, you know, the, the, the kind of quality of, um, research scientists that, that are educated in, in Canada um, are able to um, achieve and they're able to uh, really, you know, specialize to the point where they're doing very, very novel um, things. And then, so, so I, I'm not sure that the environment, I, I'm not living in there now, and, and I'm not sure that the environment is, has changed and that you couldn't um, um, put together a really good team in Canada. Um, I just think that um, with COVID, probably there's been some deterioration of, 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 the, uh, of the availability of financing. 
Got it. And and I was just going to say, so do you like? It's interesting when you talk about sort of. I mean, I guess it's all novel, but more novel, bigger ideas. Is that is that just a mindset? Is that a capital issue? Is that just like like where does that kind of come from? I'm sort of curious because because I I would agree with you, and I, and when I see sort of early stage ventures coming in, and this is obviously a broad brush stroke, the ideas that seem a bit um, kind of bigger than life, even the life sciences, <laughs> tend to be from from south of the border. Whereas here we're kind of just you know kind of just picking off the edges and the margins. And again, that's I know it's a very broad brush stroke. But is that a function of what people want to see? Is it culture? Is it the fact that there's capital to actually get to those big inflection points earlier? Any any sense of and, and maybe that trickles all the way down to the research I where, you know, I mean, I think all researchers are constrained, but I would argue NIH is sort of orders of magnitude larger than larger than CIHR funding, right? Like across the board. So just in, by more than 10x to be clear. So I'm just sort of curious, where does where do you think, or is it a combination of all of that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a there's a culture um, to think about, you know, and and develop and explore ideas that that seem, um, you know, difficult to tackle. Um, you know, if I'm thinking about, um, you know, the world of you know cell therapy and CAR T and regenerative medicine, and I'm thinking of you know gene you know gene editing and RNA, you know, therapies, and um, there. This is not, you know, these are not fields where um, the idea was started within a drug company, and then ten years later, uh, there's, you know, clinical evidence in a drug. This is something where, you know, there's, in some cases, immunotherapy. You know, there's 20, 30 years of failure, um, and then there's um, a success with, you know, the anti-CTLA4s or PD1s or whatever. And uh, it sort of opens everyone's eyes, or I guess before that there's interleukins, but I mean, it, it opens every, everyone's eyes that, you know, to the field. And then, all, you know, there's a rush of sort of capital that allows for um, both academic exploration uh, as well as um, sustained capital and effort in developing um, immunotherapies as, you know, as per that example, um, you know, with, with, with RNA, flipping to the other example, I mean, with RNA therapies, I think COVID provided and in, in in, in Moderna's vaccine provided evidence that you could get um, uh, a therapeutic that's an RNA therapeutic to produce small amounts of protein. And so there's a, I think that, that following that now there's a, you know, capital to support the idea that you could do that in other diseases where you would need, um, you know, uh, more, uh, uh, more, more protein or more peptide uh, produced, or you, you, where you might want to target a specific tissue or organ. So I think, um, so I think it's a combination of the, you know, culturally, there's this desire to be uh, the most novel, the first um, to explore areas that have never, you know, been explored. And there's, uh, and there's, and within the within academia, there is a really good sort of infrastructure and financing in order to do that. And then beyond that, there's the technology transfer piece that is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seems to be more efficient here and, and results in the university or academic institution benefiting from that exploration. And then there's the initial seed capital 
um, by highly prospective, you know, people that are somewhat risk averse and, and are willing to take on the, the risk of failing seven times or whatever it has to be to, you know, to, to get to achieve one success. And then and then there's the, the sustained capital behind that um, that is is OK with pouring, you know, sometimes billion dollars uh, into a drug before you get to market. Underlying all that, Mitch, I mean, I keep hearing one word, which is sort of, you know, culture, which is the culture to build something big, the culture, you know, at the TTO level to move it forward, the culture to allocate dollars on a high risk investment. What was the culture when you were building your team, right? And when you were trying to build a venture back in Montreal in the early 2000s, like how, like, I imagine there was a lot of friction and maybe there wasn't, but to convince students, to convince faculty, to convince PI, like, like tell, talk to us a little bit like, what was that culture like? Or was it like, like literally like, you know, Sisyphus rolling the stone uphill or was everybody, maybe there was a different mindset and everyone's like, we just need to big build ventures. Let's do it. Let's do it, Mitch. Talk, talk to how important was that for you to build, to, you know, to build that team? Like, was it there or was it, was it a struggle on the culture side mm-hmm. of things? Yeah, I mean, I think I was really fortunate to be in a lab um, with Dr. Burkash, um as a supervisor, somebody who was interested in, in, in entrepreneurial uh, ventures, somebody that understood, you know, protecting your ideas. I think previously he had worked uh, with TMS Chang as his supervisor, and they had, you know, done some preliminary work, um, potentially licensing technologies to um, uh, some pharma companies. And so... I, I, I sort of fell into that and became, you know, and agreed to, you know, uh, to, to, you know, do my master's in that lab, probably for the reason that I felt a really good fit with Dr. Burkash, being an entrepreneurial person myself and him having that kind of mindset. So I felt um, a lot of support from uh, him as a mentor, um, but also as somebody that um, would support, uh, you know, the most broad Think, you know, thinking that you could do and uh, far-fetched ideas in some people's mind. Um, and so uh, he really supported those ideas, supported protecting those ideas and supported developing our um, company early on, as well as um, the, you know, McGill OTT office um, supported mm-hmm. protecting ideas. And they also supported um, the transfer of those ideas to um to businesses uh, with a you know re- with with a reasonable cost and reasonable terms, um, and then I think the Canadian environment in terms of the grant and tax environment through IRAP and shred credits and all of this stuff, I think that you know in my mind that's you know world class support, and I think others south of the border down here understand and believe that that from a from a um, uh, a tax perspective and from a public support granting support perspective in industry, Canada can be um, a, a great environment to develop technology. Got it. That's, that's great. Um, want, want to talk a little bit about sort of maybe some, get back to the audience here a little bit of sort of um, lessons learned from, from Mitch. So, you know, you, you've been part of several ventures, Micropharma, Progenity, Finch Therapeutics, and now the current one. Um, You've probably seen a ton of things across a ton of different companies on the life sciences space. Do you, you know, what are your thoughts or, or, or do you have any ideas of sort of common elements, Mitch, that you see across all these 
um, you know, and I don't know how successful each one has been, but across these successful ventures, particularly in an early stage, like I think one you mentioned sort of cross-functional team building. So that's obviously seems to be a big one to move things forward. But are there other elements that you've sort of consistently seen as you've moved from venture to venture that you're like, wow, this is, this is always on, you know, on, on, on the checklist of things you need to have. Yeah, I mean, I think the general rule is, you know, you need um, opportunities. So those opportunities can be novel ideas. Um, they can be as early stage as targets, or they could be later stage uh, clinical ready assets, for, for instance. Um, you need great human capital. So um, folks that are, as we discussed, specialized, um, and there's a broad set of um, discovery folks, developers, and clinical stage folks. Um, and participating in, in prosecuting clinical programs uh, that are required to um, get drugs to market, as well as, you know, as we discussed, um, you know, corporate legal folks, administrative folks, and eventually commercial folks um, and marketing folks. Um, and then, you know, from so, so opportunities, human capital, and the third is financial capital. So investment, um, early investment in seed rounds and your series A, B, C in, in private investment uh, and eventually accessing capital markets uh, and IPOs, which were in fashion in the last uh, few years. Um, and I think, you know, we were discussing a little bit offline about, and I, I think it warrants, you know, adding a fourth to, to all of this, which is, I think the potential of generative AI here um, and predictive technologies might be another element that um, uh, might act to de-risk some ideas and improve matching of human capital and improve uh, the likelihood of success when thinking about financial capital and, and ideas. So um, I think it's another important element that we should keep an eye on um, with respect to um, development. Do, do you have any, you know, I'm happy to not go too deep on it, but do you have any ideas, Mitch, of how that sort of might play out? Obviously, sort of, you know, you rub your crystal ball and you sort of say, if I'm going to put generative AI, how can I level the playing field for, you know, Canada compared to the U.S. or whatever? Um, any any thoughts on what that, like, what that could look like? Like, like where do you see that being inserted to get the most leverage, I guess, for, for right-sizing the ecosystem? Well, I mean, I'll start with, you know, in, I'm working at a company right now um, where we're developing drugs for inflammation and fibrotic diseases. And uh, we look at our environment, our local sort of ecosystem, and we, we can identify 50, 100. You might even be able to identify you know, more than a couple hundred companies that are in some way associated um, or closely associated to our company. And some of those will be early stage and some will be clinical stage and some will have, uh, you know, might have commercial assets. Um, and so we spend a lot of time, you know, looking at, those and trying to say to identify, you know, what what factors make um, some more successful or less successful. What factors make some more or less valuable? And there, you know, you could look towards, you know, what's what's in fashion, you know, right now, or you know, you know, clinical readouts. Um, so, you know, does a company have multiple clinical readouts that are meaningful? Um, and are those multiple clinical readouts? Um, you know, with different assets or the same assets. So this kind of um, evaluation is, um, uh, you know, is, 
is a way for us to try to, you know, determine a strategic path forward and, and how one might build value in our specific space. But I think in the, in the future, a lot of this, uh, these kinds of evaluations and calculations might be um, done based on all of the data out there that's, you know, ever existed and, and then look uh, also at the current data. And when I look at our space, for instance, and look at the number of early stage technologies, um, you know, there are uh, three or four uh, companies I can think of now that are working on early stage technologies where their pipelines are, are quite deep and are have been developed um, with the aid of some kind of, uh, of AI. And so um, we, we feel and, and I, you know, I feel that that will uh, enable the de-risking of um, targets and the de-risking of early development. Um, and then also there, there are tools being developed that could de-risk clinical development. And so I think when we were talking about potentially leveling the, the playing field, if you have good you know, human resources within, the, within Canada, um, mm-hmm. And uh, you can attract some some of those resources back, and so you have some experience, and you also have um, uh, uh, um, some capital for early stage or for um, for ideas. You know, you might be able to reduce the number of failures and, and early, early failures, um, or you might be able to reduce the number of failures overall and sort of attract additional capital um, to the life sciences markets. Got it. Um, let's talk about a little bit of what you're talking about here and what you've done a lot of, which is preclinical and clinical trials over your career, Mitch. Um, I'm going to ask you another, I guess, tough question because there's probably more than three there. Um, what, what are three key learnings that you think every founder in this space must know in terms of either framing, thinking about, or running clinical trials? Because that's a, that's a key step in this process, whether it be, you know, phase one, two, three, whatever, but there's a, you know, there's a certain script that needs to be followed. And, and obviously the risk is, you know, the science doesn't get through that. And that's could be for a variety of reasons, right? But it doesn't always have to be wrong target, wrong therapeutic, it could be wrong study design, it could be wrong number of patients, it could be choosing the wrong outcomes, it could be, you know, um, a whole bunch of other things. What, what is it sort of that you've seen that sort of are the three critical pieces that a founder needs to think about when they're starting to map this out. And again, it's likely going to be different for phase one, two, or three, but maybe some just sort of high level points that they need to be sort of front and center. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as opposed to sort of going, like you, you had mentioned, as opposed to going into the, the, the technical aspects of how, you know, what, you know, how do you design a you know, phase yeah. one, two, you know, three study, I think, you know, lo- looking at, you know, the things that you have to evaluate when, developing a clinical program, um, you know, addressing a significant unmet medical need is front and foremost, front and foremost. Um, I think, you, you know, when I say that, I mean, you've got to select an indication and, and a setting where there's significant morbidity, mortality, uh, and you're solving a problem for patients, caregivers, clinicians, or payers. Um, I think, uh, beyond that, you know, what is, you know, within that, what is the standard of care? Um, so is there competition? Is there a standard of care you should think about with respect to your treatment? Um, is your, is your, should your treatment be used in a complementary way on top of standard of care? Um, and there are drug, you know, and clinical decisions to be made in both scenarios. Um, 
Third would be, you know, can we achieve enrollment in the study? So um, can we get investigators to enroll adequately enroll patients in the study? The enrollment factors could include, you know, uh, and you have to consider historical rates of enrollment uh, in novel therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes it enticing for patients and clinicians uh, giving existing therapy? Um, uh, you know, how should patients think about your therapeutic? Um, and, and, you know, are you offering them uh, a, a treatment that could potentially benefit them? And, and actually, a, a fourth and last one might be um, thinking about uh, clearly defining your value building milestones. Um, so, you know, is this study going to answer an important safety or efficacy question that will help further develop? The drug de-risk its development, achieve a, a milestone, increasing the value of the asset incrementally. Got it. Okay. So, are you just to be, when you think about this, Mitch? I mean, do you think about it from that point backwards, as saying, okay, what is that value or milestone when I'm running that clinical trial that I need to have, and then build a trial in and around achieving that, or do you kind of work sort of front to, you know, or maybe you work both ways, but or is it just planning out a really good trial based on sort of the first three ideas, which is, okay, what are, and I I realize both of these things meet up, but what are the big wins for patients? Where is it going to fit within the clinical pathways for providers? Is it going to be sort of last treatment of choice? Is it going to be first treatment of choice? What are the outcomes? Just how do you, or or is it, I guess it's a question I guess I'm trying to get at at the end of the day is, are, are you somewhat, and I don't mean this pejoratively, are you catering to sort of what the value inflection point is for, you know, capital allocators that, are gonna, you're going to need to get to the next level or do you plan it from just like, just do good and the rest will come sort of build it and they will come mantra. I'm just sort of thinking about how you sort of look at that. Cause I think there's, I've seen a bunch of clinical trials and, but there's no, it's unclear where it's getting to, right? I mean, I get the clinical yeah. trial be done, but there's no value inflection point. It's like, okay, well, if you get there, then what happens? And there's kind of crickets sometimes. So just how do you think yeah. about that as a zero B stage? I mean, I think you have to start with the patient in mind um, and with the significant unmet medical needs. So, um, you know, high morbidity, mortality, serious disease is one place, but there are other places where there's significant unmet medical need for patients and and for caregivers. And understanding, you know, what the current care paradigm is helps a lot in designing that study. And it helps you, you know, position it. It helps you. Uh, decide, you know, how many groups and how many arms and, you know, what should the outcomes, you know, be and how, how large should the groups be, those kinds of sort of t- more technical um, things. And then when you're thinking about building value, the idea is, is not to take on necessarily, you know, within clinical development, you don't want to take on too much um, investment early on and and dilute shareholders from an investor perspective and a, and a company perspective. You don't want to give up too much of the company early on before you build value. So traditionally, the way that you've done this is to sort of take on enough investment for a program in order to get to the next value building milestone so that if you have success, you're able to um, raise additional capital on that success at, at a lower cost of capital and so you build value in the program and you also um, are able to uh, raise additional capital for the program to continue developing it without giving up um, too much of the company early on. Now, there's a whole bunch of exceptions to that. There are companies that want to take on um, massive amounts of capital early on because they're addressing 
you know, big, hairy, audacious goals and, and, mm, and, yeah. and programs and, uh, and, and they need that capital. Um, and so, uh, but, but, you know, speaking about, you know, phase one, two, three kind of um, clinical development and, and one program, um, that's, that's, that's sort of yeah. where you think about um, building value and then raising capital and then building additional value. Got it. So it's not one size fits all is what I'm hearing, unfortunately, for, for a lot of founders you can think about it. Um, Want to want to touch on on something, Mitch, that we we chatted sort of offline. I, I really found this sort of interesting. Um, you know, and you you touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the pod here. Um, is is just sort of the the duration of time it takes innovation to actually get to the patient. And and I don't know if people sort of caught it at the beginning of. And and again, you didn't dig into it as much as when we're talking offline. But. Um, when you did your early startup, I mean, some really interesting innovations came out of it that are now sort of, there are companies getting built around it. And, you know, the specific example I'm talking about is your development at, at you know, back when you were doing an adventure, uh, a venture of an ingestible capsule to capture gut fluids. And your comment that, you know, it's only now coming to what I'm kind of call prime time as a drug delivery combination product for inflammatory bowel disease, or even the idea of using engineered bacteria um, for hereditary metabolic disorders like PKU, I think Synlogic, for example, is sort of focused on that particular area. These were things that you were talking about doing, again, maybe not for prime time, but a decade and a half, two decades ago. Talk to us a little bit about sort of these two technologies and what you were building back then. And talk to me about sort of, is this typical of sort of the curve of progression that, you know, it just, it gets built in 2000, it doesn't hit sort of patients and even then we're not quite there yet, but till two decades later, is that just typical? Is that just, is that very domain specific because of where you were and it just took a long time because we were, you, you just caught the wave really early? Um, or do we just like, that's just the way it is in medicine. It just takes that long for something to get from something really interesting, potentially impactful to actually get to patients. Like maybe walk us through it, but start with with what you were doing because I think I found that really fascinating that you were doing this stuff and it's getting all the buzz now. But I wonder whether you got that back in two thousand. Maybe you did. Yeah, I think like a lot of these things, um, it depends. Uh, it, you know, if you're working in a technology and space that's well understood, um, like a humanized monoclonal antibody space, or you know, a, a, maybe even a small molecule space, and you're you, you know, you're targeting one um, receptor and you're agonizing or inhibiting. Um, a lot of those principles, and it's orally delivered and systemically distributed, a lot of those principles are, you know, sort of well understood and there are, there are guidance and there are rules of thumb and there are uh, certainly, you know, uh, human resources with lots of experience to help develop those technologies. But when you're talking in, about purely novel technologies, I'm thinking about the cell therapies and the you know CRISPR and gene editing technologies, the RNA technologies. And in the case of you know two examples that I've been involved with, um, genetically engineered strains of bacteria as therapeutics, or um, drug device combinations that are capsule and formulated drug for local delivery. Those two examples, there weren't a lot of um, developed uh, supportive technologies. Um, there wasn't a lot known at the time. And so um, in, the, in the second example, uh, or the first example, the genetically engineered strains delivered orally at TMS Chang and, and Prakash uh, together at McGill um, did 
a lot of work in phenylketoinuria and uh, genetically engineered E. coli strains for uremia. Um, and that technology was uh, had been you know patented and um, and I think uh, there were interested parties in, in further developing the technology. But you know, fast forward 15 years later, and you're seeing companies like um, Synlogic um, mature the technology where they're using uh, what was once a probiotic strain of E. coli, E. coli missile as a platform, and then genetically engineering it uh, to produce enzymes that break down. Um, metabolites in phenylketonuria. There are other examples um, in uh, such as Novome as well. Um, but basically, this technology took a 20-year period just to develop and mature. So it wasn't as, as easy as um, saying, "Okay, we've got this, you know, idea, and 10 years from now, and a certain amount of investment, um, this product will be in the market." Um, a lot of the supporting technologies and and not just the technology to develop the uh, to develop the therapeutic, but also the regulatory um, uh, the the regulatory discussions with FDA on on how genetically engineered strains you know might act you know in the therapeutic space and might be used in the therapeutic space and you know what's required to manufacture those um, safely and what's required to uh, engineer in. Uh, uh, Certain safety uh, requirements uh, was required, and then on the on the capsule technology, um, it's now in clinical evaluation by Bureau of Therapeutics, and they're in phase one in IBD patients. And this required uh, you know 10, 15 years of work developing uh, capsules, making them smart, and, and uh, helping them uh, develop the technology to allow them to d deliver drugs locally, and then selecting the right drugs and doing the in developing our own preclinical models to prove that uh, locally acted, locally delivered drugs are more effective than systemically delivered drugs in, in the case of IBD. So, again, some of these projects take uh, longer than just the 10 years of, of drug development. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess from an academic perspective, I think probably that that's quote unquote okay for a PI. I mean, that's that's kind of part of sort of probing and exploring. I guess for a venture though, if you're building a venture, it sounds like timing is critical, right? Because if you're 10 years too early, that that's almost as good as being wrong unless you can get the funding and the support to kind of continue for those 10 years. So how important is, you know, to early stage founders, Mitch, how important is sort of timing of understanding what they're doing with what the market is ready to receive. Any any thoughts on that? Like again, I think because it's not you don't want it to become a research project forever. That's not the way to build a great venture. Um, how how do but but yeah, exciting things as you said sometimes take a long time. How how do you how does sort of found how how should founders think about that? I mean, I think there's there is an appetite, particularly in the U.S. There is an appetite for um, novel technologies, and so there are some examples where. Um, investments in early stage and novel technologies result in you know commercialization and folks knock it out of the park, you know really um, you know on the first on the first go around and then there's other examples. Um, I'm thinking in the microbiome space of people like Second Genome or folks like Series. I mean Series is about to have uh, or I think they've submitted their BLA in in C diff infection. Um, but they've been at it for almost as long as, you know, 
when we founded Micropharma. So maybe mm. a few years after we founded Micropharma, they've been at it a long time. And so I think there is an appetite and interest for um, new ideas and, and funding new ideas within industry uh, early on. And, and there is some understanding that these things take a lot more capital um, than, um, than originally uh, believed. Um, uh, and so these ideas, these companies can go through um, all kinds of different phases and, and lives, uh, you know. And so um, uh, it's, it's not uncommon that, that companies will reposition um, their technology and platform and uh, take on new investment in order to uh, achieve success. Got it. Awesome. We're getting to the top of the hour, so I'm just going to um, kind of ask some some closing questions. But what I, what I love to get from you, Mitch, is you know, you, what what are the three most exciting technologies that you're seeing right now in development that, you, in your opinion, uh, you know, will deliver significant patient impact over the next, let's just call it five to ten years? Like, what's really getting you sort of jazzed up? And it's not ready for prime time now, but if it does, you know, hit the market, you're like, this is a game changer. And then, and then maybe sort of as a as a sort of a subheading of that question is what, what you know in your area um, or, or so where you started out in microbiomics what's exciting in that area that you're actually quite surprised that you've seen happen or that you've seen not happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to the generative AI as being a transformative technology, but put, you know, putting that aside. Um, uh, you know, in cell therapy and specifically regenerative medicine, I think applications um, such as the work in type 1 diabetes by Vertex, um, they're developing um, hypoimmunogenic beta cells for transplant. Um, I think that uh, technology is super interesting, very similar to work being done by Ligenics and Satellite Bio for end-stage uh, and familial liver disease. Um, I think RNA therapies, specifically, where you know, I think we spoke a bit about this, where the you know they're using technology to target specific tissues, and some of that is AI-driven platform technology um, and uh, technologies and RNA RNA, um, RNA technologies such as flagships, Lerone's endless RNA technology, where they've sort of circular circularized the RNA in order to prevent degradation and target specific tissues is, uh, is interesting. Uh, and finally, the in the genetic engineering or genetic editing, sorry, space, um, you know, uh, companies like CLS bearings, um, hemogenics, sort of adeno associated virus vector based gene therapies uh, for hemophilia B, uh, that was uh, a recent first uh, approval in the space uh, for congenital factor uh, nine deficiency. Um, so cell therapy, RNA therapy, and, and genetic editing um, are, are three that I think are um, super innovative, not fairly novel, and are going to bear a lot of fruit. In the microbiome space, um, there's companies like um, Novum, who I uh, cited earlier, um, where they're, they're targeting colonizing the large bowel um, with genetically engineered strains. And so they're you know, picking um, strains that not only pass you know, through the bowel and can produce um, uh, uh, some kind of phenotypic effect, but, but actually um, uh, 
strains that colonize the large bowel, and they're genetically engineered to produce um, enzymes that can reduce uh, certain components um, from your diet or uh, affect the uh, immune system. And then there are companies like Federation Bio um, who are developing rational communities or rationally selected bacteria, bacterial communities. Um, and where the diversity sort of rivals that of the natural gut microbiome. So synthetic, um, you know, diverse microbiome um, where it's manufacturable, it's controllable and, and can function to combat disease. Wow. It's going to be an interesting time going forward to see all these things sort of come to market. That's awesome. Um, the, 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 the one question I was going to ask, I'm going to, th- and I skipped it, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there anyway, uh, Mitch is, yeah. And it's it goes back a little bit to to an earlier conversation we had on the pod, which is how do we attract talent like yourself or others sort of that are deep into life sciences or entrepreneurship? How do we attract them back to Canada? And and, and what are your thoughts on that? And, and and maybe we don't. Maybe you don't think it's necessary with your sort of your comment on gender of AI and leveling the playing field. Um, but I'll just throw it throw it out there as sort of a like a hail mary. Like Mitch, how do we get you back? Like what's it going to take? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we spoke about the uh, ecosystem, uh, you know, and we, we discussed, you know, requiring human capital and great ideas and investment. And so I think kind of in a similar way to, to Europe, Canada has a lot of the educated life science graduates and they're just sort of focused on other things or not necessarily attracted into um, drug development, um, therapeutics development. Um I think the major issue is still really level of investment. Um, I think that uh, there might be seed investment, a fair bit of seed investment um, within Canada, but the follow-on investment and the sustained investment and the kind of investors that are willing to stay with a company um, and uh, can withstand, you know, some failures um, is super important. So I think, um, you know, if that environment was different, I think it would be easier to, hold on to some of the, the life sciences talent. Um, and then I think, you know, if there were an opportunity um, and the, co- the country needed, you know, thinking now about um, the recent, you know, COVID situation and mm-hmm. the fact that the, the country needed infrastructure to um, develop its own uh, uh, antiviral uh, therapeutic uh, vaccine, and needed some of the um, human resources with experience to to help. So I think, um, you know, if the country prioritizes that and, and, and asks for some of the folks that have come and joined the U.S. Um, efforts to, to come back, that uh, it might go a long way. And, and some, of the, um, some of those folks might want to come back to Canada. And, and so maybe also... You know, putting together a program where you you actively go out and ask if 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 some of the human capital wants to come back uh, would help as well. Well, there you have it, Mitch. From your lips to the government's ears. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, so, just going to do some concluding questions now. Uh, top of the hour. So, and, and I know you. So, I know you're in the U.S., but let's you, you're you're trained up here. Um, the podcast is really focused on sort of innovation in the health system to make this better, um, but. The, but everything's not bad is, is the reality of the situation. And so I'm curious, you know, from your time here or from, you know, whatever you read in the newspaper, are there things that as the healthcare system, at least here in Canada changes, Mitch, from what you remember or what you're reading, are there things that you hope 
don't change as we go forward, things that sort of remain stayed and true in terms of how we deliver healthcare, and that's writ large, whether it's sort of, you know, at the primary care, whether it's a therapeutics, whether it's imaging, are there thoughts that you have that, you know what, change is good, but this kernel has to remain the same or should remain the same? I don't know if you've given that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, being a good Canadian, I, you know, universal access <laughs> to healthcare for all citizens is, uh, is, is, is a great thing to aspire to. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think citizens deserve the dignity and care of independent, you know, of, of of independent of their ability to pay uh, and geographical location um, to healthcare, and so um, I think you know there's uh, an amazing opportunity uh, to maintain that and to add some uh, uh, additional um, capabilities within the system to develop whether it's you know starting in the generic space uh, or, or further developing the generic space or in the uh, anti-infective space and then eventually hopefully in the um, novel therapeutic space developing that while maintaining the universal access to, to healthcare um, should be a goal yeah it's certainly a common answer and I think it's certainly probably the strongest component we have right is and and if you if you're a primary caregiver you certainly see that writ large where the healthcare system can be helpful um, Mitch if people want to want to find you want to kind of read about you want to stay in touch with you what's the what's the best way they should they could do that um, not that you you're gonna expect a flood of emails but but what's the what's the best way to connect with with, with Mitch Jones yeah, I have no problem if folks want to reach out, Mitchell L. Jones uh, in, through LinkedIn and uh, mitchell.lawrence.jones at gmail.com um, if you want to reach out and, uh, and we awesome. can discuss. Perfect. Thank you very much. I will put that in the show notes, but thanks, Mitch, for your time. And I will put out the last call is like whatever it takes to get you back. Happy to, happy to, you know, to do the hard lift to do the, to, to, to get you north of the border again, Mitch. But I want to thank you for your time, um, your incredible patience. And we have a couple of technical glitches here um, and, and your thoughtful conversation. Really appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll get you back again. Thanks, Amal. Thank you for having me and uh, really enjoyed my time on the uh, podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.